going on, everybody? This is the ChondroCast, the podcast for green tree pythons and the people that keep them. I'm your host, Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. Enjoy the show. It does go very fast. It usually does. <laughs> yeah. But we are now going, and welcome everybody. This is episode 11. No, this actually might be 12. Uh, this is episode 12, the Contracast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. Tonight, I'm joined by my guest co-host, David Brahms of Specialty Enclosure Designs. What's up, David? Hello. Not, not too much. How you guys doing? I'm good. And we're uh, we're joined by Ryan Young of Molecular Reptile. Howdy, howdy. Good evening. How are we all doing? Can't complain. What's what's new, David? What do you what do you got going on, man? How's uh how's the the specialty enclosure stuff coming along? Uh, it's going great. Yeah, yeah, I feel pretty good. I got a bunch of stuff boxed up, ready to ship out today. I feel like I'm I'm gaining some ground on uh. A little bit of a backlog that I've had lately, so <laughs> can't complain there. Yeah, I guess you can only you can only move as fast as the machines can print. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is slow. <laughs> All right. So Ryan, you're you're a man that's known for a many things. You breed a lot of stuff, uh, but obviously, if you're on the Condro Cast, we're here to talk green trees and condros. Um, so can you give us some background as to when you got into chondros, what your experience with your first one was like, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I've been, I think I got my first one in 1998. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just graduated from high school and had moved out, and my uh, mother couldn't tell me I couldn't have a snake anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> I uh, went for a couple of, I was working at a pet store in the area, and a local fish, or not local, but on the other side of the state, there was a whole fish wholesaler that sold a few reptiles. And they had, for a couple of years, they had been advertising a, a green python they had got in. Um, and they couldn't sell it for some reason, probably the price tag. And they uh, put it on special, and I ended up convincing my boss to let me drive over to Seattle and pick it up. So I... Uh, Went over there and picked her up. <laughs> that was the start of it all. Huh. And how how did that, like, what was your, was it one of those things, because I know I've mentioned in previous episodes, like myself, my first experience with keeping condors ended pretty disastrously. Was there, how was it, how was it for um, you? I, I mean, thought did she it, was, did it last? I, you know, I thought she was pretty <laughs> easy, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, I kept her pretty simply, um, I moved, I mean, she went through a lot of moves, went through a lot of different cages, met her a couple times. Um, so, I mean, really, I couldn't have asked for a better, a better starter one as far as she didn't give me much trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she was, she's about three or three or four years old when I got her. Um, the wholesaler had got her as a yellow neonate, um, or a yellow small animal. Uh, she was already green when I got her. Um, was it just like a biok or was it something else? No, it was a sarong. Oh, nice. 
So she was a real mellow snake. She's, I mean, I was I was terrified of her when I first got her, just because <laughs> I had heard all the, you know, they're mean and nasty. Mm-hmm. And just, I learned pretty quick that, you know, as long as I didn't smell like a mouse or a rat, she was uh, not mean and nasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and was actually quite easy to handle. And, uh, yeah, no, she was an amazing snake. I kept her in a 29-gallon fish tank for the first, like, six months I had her with just a ceramic heat emitter on one side of the cage and the pothos. And, yeah, no, she did, she did remarkably well considering <laughs> my lack of uh, knowledge on the subject. And how long was it after you'd gotten that one that you got more of them? Uh, I was like maybe three months. No. <laughs> Wasted no time. <laughs> I, was, I yeah. was hooked instantly. And set the hook. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I was. I mean, I had liked them forever. I had a, a set of animal dictionary things as a kid, and the Python section. The first snake was like a full-page picture of what was either a Aussie or Maruki green python in the jungle. And so, ever since I've been staring at that picture for you know ten years, twenty years, or whatever at the time, and so I'd always wanted one, but. Isn't it funny? You always see pictures of them in these like majestic poses where they're actually doing something, and then you keep them, and they're, they never move. <laughs> well, they're actually quite uh, False active. Advertising. If they're not, uh, overfed. Yeah. How uh, how long after that, uh, Ryan? Was it before you start getting into uh, the Aru locale? Um, I think the third green python I got was an Aru, um, a huge giant male uh, that I ended up trading to a local. Uh, private zoo for a female that they had um, and it was and I had a couple of roos sporadically throughout the years but I think it was what was the year was that it was years ago thir- or 10 years ago I sold all the different localities I had uh, to just work with roos so but you've always been more of a locality guy. Like you've never been much of a designer guy, correct? No. When I first, when I first, uh, in my zeal to just acquire chondros, when I first got into them, uh, I ended up with uh, a designer male. Um, but I, I was never. I didn't really care about that, and didn't you know, focusing on locality stuff, and never got into the. Design. Gotcha. So what was it about our ruse that, that drew you to them? Uh, I liked everything about them as far as they... I liked the the shade of green they tend to be, a mm-hmm. lot of the blue on the sides. Um, the high white thing was interesting, um, and it just kind of became a personal challenge of mine to prove that you could make high white Captain Breda ruse since all of the so-called experts at the time said it was impossible. I thought that was a pretty ignorant statement, so I decided yeah, to set out and pretty prove broad it wrong. statement. But I guess that's what happens when the hobby is led by designer-making people. <laughs> but David, you had a question about the high-weight Aru and the uh, the offspring. That oh, he, yeah, that yeah. So, Ryan, I was just curious because, uh, you know, obviously you've had really good success reproducing the white in, in your uh, offspring in your clutches is typically are you getting a, a higher white percentage uh, compared to you know 
ones that don't? Um, it depends on the pairings. If I'm doing like unrelated animals, uh, it seems to be it's a lower percentage. Uh, the percentage goes up. Yeah. Um, and I always kind of looked at it. When I first really sat down and thought to myself that it was possible to make high wider roots, you know, the information that was available was basically like a few guys that bred a ruse. They never really kept many of the babies. One baby they would keep didn't turn out high white, and so they just basically said it was impossible. And uh, I figured, well, their sample size wasn't very great. Um, and what kind of like breeding high yellow, two really high yellow jungles together and get pretty average babies. Um, mm-hmm. When you start line breeding them, you get better results. So whatever genes that go into making yellow can be different genes for different snakes. And I kind of wondered with a ruse, you know, maybe that was the case. Maybe one part of the island is is not the exact gene combination that makes them high white on the other side of the island. And or island. But I just thought, you know, maybe the thing to do was to breed babies to each other from high white adults and that's I got a pair of Chris Ruley's animals um, and they're pretty for captive bred at the time they were considered pretty you know above average but yeah. their babies are amazing they're probably uh, consistently they produce the best looking babies oh how many condors do you currently have in your collection let me think probably around 35 or something oh wow I mean, you've got a big collection as is, but I mean, how how big of a percentage of, of that whole collection is Condors? Uh, I have a couple hundred snakes, so it's probably a quarter of it, or wow. well, maybe not a quarter. I don't know. A good. I yeah, mean, most a of the Condors yeah. I have, I don't have that many adults. So I, most of the stuff I have are babies that I've produced the last few years. Mm-hmm. So, adults, I think I have maybe. 10 or 8, something like that. How many uh, different localities are you working with? Uh, right now, I just do the Aruz, and I started uh, buying some uh, wild-caught Manaquari stuff. Yep. Say, so David just got his hands on some of those, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been trying to Manaquari collection uh, for a little while. Uh, but I, yeah, I've noticed online you've posted some pictures of those, some really nice looking animals. Yeah, I thought it would be fun to do a high white Azuria project as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> kind of tinkering with that too. Yeah. Um, so I got, yeah, I got some recent success with those. So raise up those babies and see what happens. All right. So. You per, and from judging judging by the pictures I've seen of your collection, you like to keep yours pretty simple, right? You don't do the natural, no fancy I stuff. Keep them on uh, forty pound or sixty pound craft paper with a water bowl. So, no, you, I don't usually even give them a heater or anything. So well, that's because you have the the uh, benefit of ambient temperatures, which I wish. Yeah, I heat the, I heat my snake room. So I'm so just... torn because it sounds so convenient to have ambient temperatures, but at the same time, like I don't want to be working in ambient temperatures. Like if I have to clean and stuff. How you get used to it? Yeah, it's so much easier. 
I think it's a lot easier. It's a lot safer. I think that makes their cages more user or usable. Mm-hmm. So. And so, are they getting a night drop? Like, is the whole do you do you have a night drop on the whole room? Depends. The basically for six months out of the year. Well, I guess there's basically four seasons up here during the summer. Um, the room will get as hot as like 85 during the day and mm-hmm. then back down to 80 at night. Um, during the fall, uh, it's usually just 82 to 80. And then during the winter cycling period, they get, um, it fluctuates for three months and then it spends about a month down in the real high 60s, low 70s during the day and then back to 80, 82 during or during the day, so at night it gets down to low seventies, high sixties. So, are you um, are you primarily using temperature as your means of of cycling the animals, or do you do, you do food cycling as well? Um, I usually food cycle. It's not. I don't. A lot of it's not like really thought out. It's more just. Uh, oh, it's breeding season. I need to start feeding these things if I want eggs, and so. Uh, it's not, I don't have like a schedule where, it's where I start feeding them on a particular day or anything. It's just, yeah. Usually when I'm during the breeding season, I just feed them a lot more. What time of year are you usually pairing yours? Uh, I start temperature manipulations, uh, October 1st and, uh, I'll put them together anywhere from October 1st, uh, through the following summer, depending on if they're still showing interest in each other. But typically, if they're going to do something for me, they do it uh, fairly quick. Once, or, you know, January, February, I can tell if, you know, I'm making any headway. Because mm-hmm. I put my I put my pair together in June, and I didn't get eggs until... Man, it must have been... Why well, it's like late December, I think, is when I finally got eggs, and I had a ton of locks and potential locks, and uh, finally she ovulated, and then I finally got eggs, and it felt like forever. I couldn't yeah, figure out what the deal can... was because they were they were locking like crazy, and I never got any egg action. So I was like, he'll figure out when she's ready. Like he'll know better than I will when she's she's primed. Yeah, I usually uh, have a situation where a lot of the times when you first put them together. Mm-hmm. Um, They'll breed, whether it means anything or not. I always kind of just refer to it as uh, sport sex. <laughs> they <just laughs> Recreational. Do it sport. Yeah. And, uh, you know, after a couple times of that, if, if nothing's happening with the female, the male usually kind of loses interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of the times I'll kind of just watch the males. Um, and if they start pacing a lot, uh, I'll figure out, well, somebody must be doing something. And I've had females, like, if I was breeding a male to a couple different females, I'd put him with one female and he wouldn't breed with her, and he would still be pacing, so I'd put him in with another female, and he would breed that one over and over again and ignore the other one. So I figured, well, he must know what's going on. So Yeah, it's someone else, yeah someone else had mentioned something similar, where they tried it one male with with a couple females, and he didn't have any interest in any of them, but he, they put him in with one other female, and he he's all over it. Yeah, no, they're they're if you pay attention, they're really good at telling you when there's something going on. Um, a few clutches I've had like way out of season or what I would consider season, I've been just strictly because, you know, I pay attention to what the males are doing and if uh, 
they're incessantly pacing even mm-hmm. after like you feed them yeah then i figure well some some female must be doing something and then it's and the hard part i guess at that point is trying to determine which speed dating do you just start rotating the male through the females till you find the one that matches up or uh, it depends i mean i do have pairings that i want to do so if uh like i had a manaquari female cycling in my aru male was actually going nuts but i yeah. never obviously i didn't put him in there um but the manaquari males weren't really as uh incessantly pacing as him but i put him in with the females that i he didn't breed with any of them and just kept pacing their cages at night too so i figured well must be somebody else so yeah and so when you put them in there with those different girls how long are you leaving them in there until you figure out that that's not the one oh if they're if they, if the female's cycling that they're, they're they're very willing breeders they're usually locked up within a couple hours or at worst during that evening now when you're you're pairing them up ryan do you um you know at least my experience this past year was the male would you know they would actively breed for a while then they kind of cool off and would you separate them for a little bit and then do reintroductions uh repeatedly until you got you know the result that you're looking for yeah i would usually leave them um if they were hanging out near each other i would leave them but then the first day that I would look at them, and if they were sitting on opposite sides of the cage, then I would pull them apart. Um, I usually feed them then. Uh, wait, you know, wait three to five days, put him back in there. Um, like you said, if they if he's not breeding anymore, then just maybe once a month I'd put him back in there and see what happens. And if he starts showing interest in it again, then I would just go back to leaving them together if they were hanging out. Otherwise, you know in and out until something's going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was the interesting thing to watch with mine. Cause I kept my male in with my female pretty much full time, except to feed him and I'd separate him for a few days, but watching him like he, I guess he, like I said, he could tell when she was ready because there would be some weeks where he'd be all over her all week long. And then there'd be other weeks where they'd be at opposite ends of the cage the entire time. And there was no interest at all. But then like a storm front would come in. And of course, then he gets right back over to it. And so it was just kind of, yep. it was so interesting to watch just sort of the cycles of like the rise and fall of interest and stuff over the span of a few months. It was really, really interesting to see. Yeah, I think it's probably, I mean, I would guess in the wild when they come together, they'd breed for an, ex, you know, a period of time and then separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, they are solitary snakes overall. So I don't know that they want to spend all their waking time with each other, but. They uh, they usually like to copulate. So if, if there uh, if there's any fertility going on, they're usually pretty on it. So I haven't had much experience with males not wanting to breed yeah. certain females. <laughs> um, I've had experience with males that were clearly big enough to breed, mm-hmm. um, but for whatever reason just didn't want to for a year or so, and then once they got started, then they were fine. But I've Other heard that's that, a that's a big thing with Brettles pythons. Like the males, if they're under a certain age, they usually don't have any interest for some reason. But if you you wait four or five years or so, it sounds like males are usually much more reliable. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of male pythons. We try to breed them really early, but mm-hmm. I think that's probably fairly even. Like if they're sexually mature in the wild, 
it's probably unnatural for them to be actually breeding because there's going to be a bigger male that's not going to yeah. <laughs> tolerate the little yeah. male's presence. At uh, what age do you start, um, you know, uh, allowing them to, to try and breed, Ryan? I don't, I don't know if I pay that much attention to the age. I kind of just, when I feel like they're comfortably, I'll start mm-hmm. trying. And in my experience, that's, Usually that first season that I tried, the male will breed a few times and nothing happens, and it's usually the season after that, but I have a better, I feel like my odds go up. So I would say on average they're probably four and a half to five and a half years old. Mm-hmm. And do you yeah. wait? do you wait just as long for females? Oh, I was the females I was talking about. Oh, Males, okay, I'll okay. try those gotcha. at. You know, when they're <laughs> I don't, tiny, they can. I'll try them. I mean, usually nothing happens, but you I would never say know. Most, <laughs> yeah, most of the males that I've had, uh, I would say at three and a half, they were usually pretty good breeders. By four and a half, they're you know really good. Hmm. But I've heard of people you know breeding eighteen month old, two and a half year old males. I haven't had good luck doing that. But I might have been blaming the males for the females just not being ready either, so it's hard to say. Uh, yeah, I mean, you would think if they were of age and they were able to sort of act on that instinct of, like, reproducing early, they'd do it as soon as they could. You would think so, but you've also, uh, uh, you know, you've got other snakes in the room. I don't know if the smell of the more mature males deters them. Oh, yeah, that's think, a good point. You know. If they think, well, if I roll up on this female, maybe that male I can smell, he'll roll up <laughs> on the two, and then I'm going to get my behind kick. <clears throat> and so when you get eggs, what have you? what's your preferred way of incubating chondro eggs? Uh, I just put them in uh, the no substrate at 88.5 and let it ride. See, I I tried that with the clutch I got, and I you know I wasn't all that happy with it. I don't think I'm gonna switch it up next time, David. I don't know what you what you did. Yeah, I started out with the no substrate method, but I think my air circulation in my incubator wasn't quite right because the um, the eggs were desiccating more than mm-hmm. I think they should have early on. So I about two weeks in, I think it was, I ended up um, putting them in right into vermiculite. Um, and they plumped right back up, and of course, you know, the rest of the incubation was pretty much problem free. Um, yeah, I think that's what I'm so going to use next time. I just, like I said, I had the same issue where mine, I had, I think Brian Fisher or maybe Justin Wilbanks were like, dude, those things are dehydrated. I was like, and then I showed Harlan, and Harlan's like, no, they're fine. And so I was looking back though; those things, I think they were dehydrated. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna switch it up next time. I don't, I did the same thing, and it just, I somehow, I don't know how it's possible that you can have them sitting over water in a in closed space and they somehow don't get moisture yeah they uh they have tricky eggs sometimes and even like you'll set them up the same way for years and it works you know eight out of ten times and then two times for whatever reason it doesn't so it's kind of they definitely have the hardest part about breeding them is the eggs yeah everything else is pretty straightforward that's that's what I learned with this first round was getting eggs is the easy part. Everything after that's uh, a little more nerve wracking. <laughs> it can be. Sometimes it just goes forward. <laughs> sure. What do you uh, primarily feed your adults, Ryan? 
I mostly feed mice. Well, I guess I'll probably 99.9% mice. Yeah. Occasionally, uh, uh, my local uh, rodent breeder has like soft fur rats that she's looking to get rid of in a, you know, because she's has too many. I'll feed them those. Um, but I generally avoid rats. I occasionally I'll give a a female that I'm trying to breed a rat at a, a time in which I think it would benefit her to get a rat. But other than that, that's pretty, pretty rare. And what kind of, when do you, what, how often are you feeding your adults? Um, I don't have a schedule. The females pretty much, uh, I'll feed a couple times a month on the males. Like a, a non breeding situation, I'll feed them anywhere from one to two times a month. Mm-hmm. The males, uh, my males, I usually feed a lot cause I don't feed them very big meals and they stay real active. And yeah. so I can actually feed them a lot. The females are fairly lazy, so I don't feed them as much, but, um, and then sometimes I'll feed them two or three times, you know, once a week and then I won't feed them for two and a half months. So it just kind of, <laughs> mm-hmm. it varies big time depending on, food availability and what they're doing yeah we had harlan on uh thp a couple months ago when we were talking to him about his food cycling and i was surprised at how short of a span of time you had to give him food to really get him going like it wasn't like go ahead what was he what was his point just like a couple weeks or yeah it was like maybe i'm trying to remember off the top of my head but maybe two or three weeks of just like very small meals but reg like on a pretty consistent basis for like i said two or three weeks and he said he you know after doing that man they they were on yeah usually because a lot of the times during the summer when it's really hot here i won't feed them as much mm-hmm. and then uh starting in well, i'd say mid-september i might start giving them more often and then about a month into cycling, then I'll start. I'll feed them as often as once a week if they're if the males breeding them hard, mm-hmm. and just you know see if you can trick them or <laughs> get them to go. So that's something uh, me and Jake were talking about recently too. Is like most snakes, I feel like. I mean, obviously there's exceptions, but I feel like most snakes you could probably get them to breed pretty much year round if you really wanted to. Because we were talking about I have bears, uh, rats, well, and. I'm, Tropical snakes, probably not uh, <laughs> non-tropical snakes. I wouldn't think you, most of those need a pretty good cycle to breed. Mm-hmm. I know you have um, like inlands and all that good stuff, so I'm sure those are maybe somewhat different. Yeah, I usually put them out in the garage, and kind of it's kind of like an incubator that's in my garage, and I drop them into the mid sixties. Mm-hmm. Just for about a month, and then put them back in the snake room. And so Ryan, after the... you, sorry, no problem. No, I was just going to ask you. So, um, you know, once you get a clutch and you successfully incubated them, and you, you actually get them to hatch, are are you the type that will start trying, you know, feeding trials right away, or do you wait until they have their first shed? And, and what what's your method? What do you typically do to to get them going? Uh, I usually wait for like a month after they shed before I start trying. Oh, wow. So at least two weeks. Um, 
and then I'll start trying. The uh... Do you find that they're just a little more aggressive at that point, or is is that the reason why you wait so long? Yeah, I mean, they're born with a – usually they've got a real decent supply of yolk, and so I just wait for them to shed. And when they first hatch, they're kind of – I don't know, they're kind of like gummy lizards. They're not really very <laughs> stout, and it seems like it takes them six weeks or so after being mm-hmm. hatched to – Kind of firm up, and that's when I start trying. So, interesting. Oh, okay. if that makes any sense. But. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, uh, my clutch. I I started immediately, um, just because I figured the the sooner I get a jump on it, the better. And of course, this is my first go around with those guys, and um, I, I had pretty good luck with it. I found that they were particularly um, defensive, you know, um, a few days out of the egg, so it kind of worked in my favor, but. I was just curious to, as to what you do as well. Yeah, I've done in the past. I've just out of curiosity to see if I could get one to do it. I had I've gotten them to eat early, but I didn't. I the one I got to eat, then it seemed like after it shed, it didn't want to eat for a while, mm. and so I've kind of abandoned caring about doing that. So, <laughs> and I tried to get them off pinkies as fast as humanly possible. So, I'd like to. Uh, I like him to be a little older when I give him a big meal. So. And so at that point, what are you doing? Are you doing like fuzzy heads or something like that? No, I'll give him a, like a, what I try to do is um, if I go to my rodent supplier's house or mm-hmm. I'm starting to breed some of my own mice again, um, I'll look for, you know, cubs that have a lot of feeders, babies. And there's always like a few fuzzies that aren't as fat and getting as much milk as the others. Mm-hmm. They kind of, you know, they're not they're not thriving. The so runts, to speak. yeah, yeah. They're kind of they're fuzzy, but they're like the size of a big pinky, and they're probably on their way to not make it to adulthood. <laughs> I, you're, uh, you're I like to look that. for those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you you actually can take a fuzzy and kind of give it a day or so without its mom, and you can create those yourself if you're so inclined but i usually have enough access to live ones that i mm-hmm. can find enough of them um, a day i need them so but david you got almost are... all of yours eaten though except for two right yeah yep um Must most nice. of them very quickly got onto full pinks pretty quickly um there's just two holdouts that are a little more stubborn than the others um so i've had the um you know, assist feed them because they're not, uh, they're not very strikey. They're not super aggressive. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, you know, I've been giving them mouse tails. Um, and you know, of course they grab that and, and eat it. No problem once it's in their mouth. So it's been pretty easy as far as that goes. So when you say full pinkies, are you talking about pinky heads or what are you talking about? No, no, a whole pink. Okay. Yeah. I've never, I've never fed them anything but a whole pink. So I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, some of them I had to tease with pinky heads because um, they, you know, once they would grab it, they would really aggressively try and, and spit it out and get it out of their mouth. And if there was any any meat left there that they could actually wrap around and pull it out, they would. So the, the pinky heads work to just kind of force them into eating it once they bite onto it. And then most of them, after I did that a couple times, um, would go ahead and grab a whole pinky and eat it, no problem. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I've never done that. So, interesting. 
I've got two of ten that are eating pinky. So you just go and... straight to, to whole pinks right from the right from the get go. Yeah, I usually give them three to four pinks, and then I try a fuzzy. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you just yeah. you basically just hold out babies, and wait. Yeah, right? when they, that's where you get the prolapses and stuff with the babies is from that pinky goo. There's no. It's you got to get out of that as fast as possible. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you're, I mean, you're just waiting on them basically now, for, to take on their you, own. Your stubborn babies that don't want to take pinkies at all. What do you, what do you end up doing with them? Uh, I'll tail them a few times, but honestly, I'm kind of a. Feels like if you don't want to be here, I don't want you. <laughs> and so it's, <laughs> it's all I do. I don't put near the effort into saving stubborn ones as other people do because I feel like they're just going to go on to make stubborn babies themselves. And okay. in a way, yeah. we are domesticating these things, and so it's. Um, I don't know. I just feel like you're perpetuating, getting bad feeders to. That don't well, not bad feeders. Instinctually, they yeah. don't eat pinkies, so it's you're, right. you're starting at a deficit from the get go. But once you're, that's unfortunately what we have to feed them, and so you, uh, the ones that don't want to get with the program, I usually, I think I have like six or seven. Yeah, I'll force feed them that many times, and after that, it's kind of sink or swim. So, and so you just keep offering them until they take, and if they don't, they don't. Pretty much, um, I've only I would say it's it's not that often. I've only had to do maybe what two babies in the last five years that just I couldn't. I mean, I probably could if I would have just continued force feeding them forever and. <laughs> put in the effort i probably could have mm-hmm. got them going but i just felt like they didn't they weren't thriving animals and yeah Wasn't i didn't meant really to want that in my gene pool so i usually just feed the baby to a blue tongue skink or something <laughs> how often are you feeding the babies uh every seven to ten days and then if i when i first start putting them on fuzzies uh maybe every two weeks okay well, I'll just kind of look at their body. If they have thinned back out and taken a dump, then I'll feed them again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm definitely not a schedule guy. don't really believe in the feeding schedule. Yeah, I mean, I think with chondros, like, that's become sort of common practice with a lot of the guys that have been keeping them long enough. It's just, if I can't remember the last time I fed them, then they're due. Yeah, they'll let you know. If they're real hungry, they'll move around. <laughs> you can, uh, they're easy, they'll... You can feed them a lot if you feed them little meals, or you can feed them very little if you feed them huge meals. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of up to you. And for the adults that you're, are you, if you're not feeding them rats or what are you mean, you just giving them one adult mouse per feeding, you giving them two. What yeah, I never, I never do multiple multiple okay. prey items. But, so jumbo spent breeder mouse would be like the biggest meal they would get. Mm-hmm. And like I said, occasionally they would get you know, like a medium-sized software rat. And I guess there's been a few times where if there's, like, spent breeder software rats available, I've given them to them. But that's pretty rare. Maybe a once-a-year kind of thing. Like a birthday treat. <laughs> yeah, it's just whenever. If she has them and she's like, you want these software rats, can you use them? I'll be like, well, I'll find something to eat them. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, something I'm, I'm always curious about, too, because you have some emeralds, right? Yep, I have basins and northerns. What's been your experience of those compared to chondros? Because Marshall Mendez was on GTP Keeper Radio a couple weeks ago, and he was saying he actually thinks emeralds are easier overall than chondros. Um, hmm. And I'm always curious, for the people that keep both, I always like to ask them just to see what they think about it. I think, I mean, I keep them basically exactly the same. Uh, maybe the, the emeralds are in bigger cages because they're just bigger snakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I don't really like emeralds that much. I think they're pretty boring. Um, <laughs> they're, I always equate it to like, it's a, you know, they're like a real nice looking girl across the room, but you wouldn't want to date her. And so, <laughs> I like to look at her, but you want to take the chondro home to your mom. Not the, not the emeralds. <laughs> I think his point with them was is over the, in general, emeralds seem to have less problems in his his experience than chondros did. Um, I don't know if I would agree with that. I think a lot of people have problems with chondros because they try to treat chondros like they shouldn't be treated. Not, they get them too big and feed them too much and keep them too hot mm-hmm. and they. Uh, they can suffer those indignities for a while, but eventually they're going to have problems. Hmm. I mean, you can't you can't take a snake that's supposed to be 400 to 600 grams and grow them, you know, to 1,200 to 1,500 or 2,000 grams and expect it not to have health issues. Right. So I mean, seven-foot human beings don't they usually have joint problems and health issues from mm-hmm. being big, so it's... We'd be much better off to starve them and or what we would consider starving them than we kill them with kindness. So. Yeah, we really do baby them a lot, and that's something I've said on here a bunch of times. Most episodes actually is like we care them to death. Yeah, no. When I first, when I like I said, when I first got my first one, I just was kind of going on instinct. I didn't. Uh, some of the forums were just starting to pop up and I remember reading the forums when they first, and I was like, what are these people talking about? Like, why are they overthinking this? It's just a green pipe on a stick. <laughs> it's not, I mean, I, it just seemed like they were trying to make them into something they weren't. Yeah. And like hyper analytical. I just, uh, I just thought that was, interesting and i remember the first so i first started breeding my green pythons i'd never heard anybody talking about how much they should weigh and i weighed my female after she laid eggs and i was like wow she's like half as big as everybody else says Mm -hmm. she needs to be (laughs) so i guess in some ways i was fortunate but i didn't uh i wasn't too unduly influenced by some of that stuff Mm. Now, did you uh, have... my interest in what was that? <clears throat> oh, keep going. I was going to ask you another question. Oh, my interest in other pythons just basically made it to where I just kind of treated them like everything else. Mm-hmm. It seems to work. And so, have you taken some of that your practices as far as conjures goes and applied it to everything else, or is it kind of the other way around where you were keeping other stuff and you're like, this would work for the green trees too? Um, I'd say that you kind of goes both ways. It just depends. Mm-hmm. The, uh, 
I mean, really, it's they're all. I keep them all in the same conditions. Most of them I don't give basking spots unless they're gravid, and so um, I'll put certain snakes in different elevations in the room. Mm-hmm. If I'm like, I usually keep the stuff that wants to be cooler down lower. Um, condors are across the top, not because I think they need to be hotter, but just because that's where I have room for them. I have tall cages, and so just. Uh, but otherwise, I mean. I don't sit and spray them and miss them and do all this stuff people talk about. <laughs> yeah, I don't miss mine at all. They, I haven't they drink even, out of a water bowl just fine. Yeah, I haven't even been missing my babies because I'm a big Terry Phillip fan and I listened to his episode on uh, Reptile Radio or something a couple weeks ago again. And uh, I'm, in, I'm in complete agreement with him. Like when it's raining in the wild, they don't want to be out and exposed to that. They're going to be hiding from it. And so the only time I missed mine at all is when they're going into a cycle, and even then I don't miss them that much. I just keep it slightly more humid than, than normal. Yeah, I have mine with screen tops <laughs> on their cages, and so I'll usually just put a piece of paper over the top, and maybe I'll dump out their water bowl when mm-hmm. I'm cleaning it, and that's about it. <laughs> what size cages are you keeping your adults in? Like, what are you, what are you running? Um, I, well, right now I'm kind of in transition. I had been keeping them in um, Exoterra and Zoomed glass tanks, uh, 18 by 18 by 24 tall. Mm-hmm. Um, I built a new snake building edition last last year, and so now I have 10-foot uh, pallet racks that the cages are on, and so I'm rebuilding cages to fit um to fit on those shelves and so i'm starting to do two foot deep uh 16 to 18 inches wide and two feet tall yeah i, I was um i was curious uh, with your babies are you keeping them the exact same temps as your adults are you keeping them any warmer or uh no i keep them exactly the same 80 82 um yeah. depending on what there's a few i have two racks that have heat the babies and i have three or four that don't and it just kind of depends on where I put them. Some of them will have heat. Some of them won't. It's not really a conscious effort. It's just whatever slots are available when the babies come. Right. Um, and so it, uh, I find that they do just as well. I used to keep my babies in my adult room, and so they would go through the cycle mm-hmm. just like the adults would. And mm-hmm. uh, I actually thought that was really beneficial, and I wish – um, the baby room that I have right now, I can't, it's not set up to cycle like that. Um, if I, if I rewind it at some point, I'm going to change it to where I can cycle the babies just because I feel like that consistency year in, year out gets them used to it and then gets them used to when they're going to cycle as an adult. And so I found, yeah, I found that they were just locked right in with the adults and as soon as, you know, they didn't skip a beat, when things would start to change, they it's just normal. And did you notice any difference with them as far as feeding response or anything when you were dropping them like that too, or was it just the... Uh... No, they they just fine. Okay, gotcha. Because I know a lot of people like to keep theirs at 86, and I don't know, do you, do you did you find a major difference between that and the lower 80s like you were doing now? Um. Well, I used to... Back in the day, I did what everybody did. I had heat panels, bigger cages, 
And I always found that the snake spent every waking moment it could as far away from the heat panel as it could, mm-hmm. except maybe if it got a big meal or it was gravid. Um, and I found that they had their skin condition was really bad um, in heat panel cages because I just think they were like getting a sunburn all day. Yeah. Um, they couldn't really get away from it. And I, I, I think by happenstance, I had, I had moved from one snake building or one snake room to another and I forgot to plug the the green python heat panels back in. And I kept thinking like, why are they spending all this time? I've never seen them on, you know, in the middle of the cage or on the right (laughs) side of the cage. This is odd. I've just never, and it it finally dawned on me that I hadn't turned on the, the heat panel. And so as soon as I turned it back on, I noticed that they were back, as far away from it as they possibly could get. And that was when I just kind of went, you know what? They clearly don't want to be this hot. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, I started keeping them without the heat panels. And then I figured, well, you know, if I had them in a 30 inch by two foot by two foot cage and they could only use a quarter of it because the heat panel is in there, you know, I don't need to give them as big a cage. And they can use the whole cage because there's no hot spot, mm-hmm. and they tend to use, you know, every inch of it versus just the, the side that didn't have the heat panels. And I don't tend to grow mine as big as other people, so I keep in smaller cages than a lot of people do. And what have your clutch sizes been like as a result of that? Uh, I think my clutch average is like twelve to fifteen still decent for a smaller snake like that though yeah I think they're I mean I think the smallest clutch I've ever had was 9 or 10 and the biggest clutch I think I've ever had was 21 my guess is they're supposed to lay somewhere between 8 and 14 naturally yeah Yeah. I know you don't like actively weigh your your snakes but you know just for a reference in the size of your females how big are you talking on your adults um, it's hard. It's honestly, it's very hard to keep them under 800 grams. Yeah. You have to basically never feed them to get them <laughs> to stay under 800 grams. Uh, so I would say my males are on average like 480 to 500 grams mm-hmm. as you know, once they're like eight to 10 years old and my females are anywhere from 650 to 850. And do you do anything with your females before you get into the season? You beef them up? Or you just kind of keep a steady, uh, like your regular, quote unquote, schedule. I guess. Yeah, I usually don't feed them much during the summer months uh, when the room's getting real hot, mm-hmm. and I, it's really not because they can't handle it or anything. It's just like I tend to give them. It's just part of the food cycling thing. I don't give them that much, and then uh, starting late September, October, then I start feeding them a lot. So that's kind of the that mixed with the temperature cycling trick, you know, triggers them into doing something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I didn't cycle my female a whole lot. I didn't like conditioned her. I gave her a few extra meals uh, up until she stopped eating. But I mean, I really didn't do anything different once I paired her. I pretty much kept things the same. And I didn't have any issues. All the eggs came out fine. Uh, she didn't have any binding issues or anything like that. Yeah, I think green pythons are probably the epitome of a snake that can breed with no cycling. But I breed a lot of other stuff that cycling helps so Mm -hmm. they're just along for the ride (laughs) 
and I would still do it even if I just had green pythons. I would still temperature select them. With your current method, what's your uh, fertility rate on those clutches? Like, how many are you getting? You know, 100% good eggs. Uh, you know, once you lay them, or are you getting a percentage that are duds? Or it's pretty rare that I get a bad egg. I mean, I'm not the greatest at incubating them. I'm a little long, so I tend to. If I'm gonna lose them, it's right at the hatch time. I'll get a lot of DOAs <laughs> or a few eggs during yep. incubation. But honestly, the eggs themselves, it's. I mean, I'm. Knock on wood, I do pretty good with that. Occasionally, I've gotten like a few big females from other people. If I have reproductive complications, it's usually with those females hmm. that I've gotten, and then try to breed them that first time. Uh, interestingly, I had a female aru that I'd gotten that laid a clutch, and what did she lay? She was a big snake. Uh, she was probably over a thousand grams when I got her. I got her down into the 800s, I think, by the time she laid her clutched. Uh, she laid 11 or 12 eggs, I think, um, and retained a couple. The next day, I was I kind of tried to squeeze the eggs out a little bit. Uh, nothing, nothing came out. And then the next morning, uh, she was in the cage and her overduct was wrapped all around the per- the perch of her cage with the yeah. so I I peeled the peeled it off of the perches and I took it and washed off her cloak in the sink and or there's probably eighteen inches to two feet of overduct hanging wow. out. And there was a big tear in the side and a twist where the <laughs> last couple of eggs were. So I manually I manually squeezed out the last three or four eggs. Um, through the tear that was there, and then I rinsed off the overduct. I hung, I held her up by her tail. Uh, I took a big, the biggest probe I had, and I greased up her overduct with KY jelly, and I stuffed it back in <laughs> with a with a big snake probe, and I put a, a piece of electrical tape around her leg, and I I figured she would die, you know. I kind of thought, well, that's mm-hmm. and about I'd say it was probably about. A month later, she was. I bring a bucket of mice in the room, and she started acting like she wanted to eat. And so I was like, "Well, okay, well, we'll see what happens." <laughs> so I started feeding her, and she was doing great, did fine, crapped fine. And I was like, "Well, okay." Then I was thinking, "Well, I'll give her to somebody as a pet, you know, to retire." Mm-hmm. And uh, I never did. I never got around to doing it. And two years later, I was just really curious to see if she could still reproduce. And I put a male in with her and she laid a clutch of eggs. So she only laid 11 eggs. She'd laid 20, uh, 18 or 20 the first time. And she only laid 11. The eggs were a little bit bigger. I think what was happening is she'd only damaged one of her oviducts. And so she still had the other one. And, uh, she lays eggs. She's laid eggs twice since then. So, that's nuts. That is crazy. Yeah. So I see a lot of these people that take them in and get surgery and kill the snake, and I'm like, you know, you might be able to save them other ways, but whatever. They're tougher than we give them credit for. Yeah, I, I mean, I really thought she was a goner, but she bounced back, and I really didn't think she'd be able to breed. But mm-hmm. I remember the post when she about ovulated. That. I thought, well, that's going to kill her, and then no, it didn't kill her, and then she laid the eggs. So. 
And when it comes for hatching time, are you cutting eggs or do you just let them, if they're going to come uh, out, they're no, going to come I, out? The biggest mistake of my condor breeding career was listening to those idiots about cutting eggs. So I don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a real, I had a really cool bio project years ago with this crazy high black female. And she laid 11 perfect eggs. Incubation went flawlessly. And it was like during the peak of the Greg Maxwell. It was another, just a real nice pair of high black or uh, biox. Oh, okay. And incubation went flawlessly. The eggs were beautiful looking on day 52. And I was just getting itchy. Wanted to want them to hatch. And everybody was telling me to cut them and, I cut them, and the babies were still in the polar position, so they were all I could see was white because they were upside down. Their bellies were, and so I, I cut probably more than I should have because I was like, "What are these? Not even fertile? What's going on here?" And they just weren't ready, and uh, so yeah, I ended up screwing them up. Didn't hatch any of them, so I don't cut anymore, <laughs> or at least not until the first one pips. Mm-hmm. And have you done maternal incubation on any? Have you tried that at all? I tried it once and it didn't go so great. So no, <laughs> I haven't done it. So I'm I'm I was going to with this clutch that I got, but I ended up bitching out last minute, and I still want yeah, to. I should have done just... it with the Manakari clutch I had this year. That was she was the best. She seemed like she had the best coil, the best. The eggs were like in a perfect ball. Mm-hmm. I should have. If I was going to do it, I should have done it with them. To see. But I chickened out. Yeah, I just... She, I, she laid and then I pulled the bucket up because that's what I use as a lay box. I'm not using that next time either. That thing's horrible. Um, and I was like, man, she looks thin. And she's a big biox, so I wasn't too worried about it. Like, if there was any female that would have been able to pull it off, it would have been her and... I I freaked out last minute because I was like, oh, she's super thin. And, like, that'll be really rough on her. And then, of course, she goes back to perching and she looks fine. Like, you almost wouldn't have been able to tell she had even laid. <laughs> I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, I know. Green pythons always look rough. They look like they take laying eggs really badly compared to other pythons. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you know Riley Jimmis or not. He just had a jungle clutch that just went all the way with MI and that female, like you, literally wouldn't have even known that she had just went two months without food. She's flawless. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but a lot of the times my females don't start eating until their eggs hatch, anyways. Mm-hmm. Even just they're sitting on their perch, but they're not interested in food. Oh no, so. my girl was she was ready to go right after she was ready. She was hungry. Yeah, yeah my old my older root female did, but my manaquara she didn't eat till her babies was like it was literally like two days after. Her eggs were hatching as she started eating. My old female, Rue, I think she would have eaten. Right, but she probably could have left her with me if she would have eaten. I'm really, I'm going to try it at some point. I'm really curious. I just don't know when that's going to be. <laughs> yeah, I would like to do it again, but I just chicken do it. And do you, are you breeding the same female year to year? Or are you giving them a year off before you pair them again? What do you, what do you do there? Um, I have bred them back to back. It's pretty rare. Most of the time, it's every other year. Um, mm-hmm. My female Aru that just laid this year was, I think she's 15 years old. Wow. And this was her fifth clutch. So, 
I think she laid. She went like one year, took three years off, then went every other year. So. Because I'm giving my girl a year off, which gives me time to find another male to pair with her next year. Yeah, I always, I typically don't try to do it back to back, but I have in the past. Because yeah. <coughs> she laid a clutch. Of, from the norm. She she laid a clutch of seventeen. I've got ten that survived, and I'm actually kind of glad I don't have seventeen of these non-eaten things. <laughs> ten is ten is much more realistic and much more easier to uh, to maintain. Yeah, I don't know if it's just because I've done it a few times or what. I don't stress about it like I used to. Yeah, I mean, just the first process of breeding them and hatching them myself. It's like, man, next time is going to be so much easier because I know what to expect now. Like the first time when you have you've never seen any of it, you know, firsthand, you don't have any hands-on experience with it. It's really nerve-wracking. And you're asking a bunch of people what they think, and everyone does it differently. And you know, you have one yeah, question, no, and you get ten uh, answers. And <laughs> no, yeah, I think in a lot of ways you're better off to find one person you trust mm-hmm. and do it. If that's how you're modeling your keeping stuff, then just do what they do, not try to do what everybody does. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just like I just need some sort of baseline of like this is how you do it. And then once you get that figured out, like figure out what you would change next time and then just constantly sort of polish it and figure out, you know, try different things, see what works best and continue to change it up a little bit until you're happy with the results. Yeah, that's by far the best way to do it. But you have to have that place to start. You have to have that baseline. And fortunately, uh, Brian Fisher and Justin Wilbanks and Harlan, I I think me and David were talking a pretty good bit too because we were both waiting on our clutches to hatch and... Uh, I kept the I kept my my pool of of advisees small. Yeah, as you'd be amazed. And what works for one person is not yeah necessarily work for everyone. And that's been the mm-hmm. case for me with feeding these things because everyone's like, oh man, you know, try this, try that, and like nothing I try works. And they're like, well, this works for me every time. And I'm like, well. I'm, I'm... <laughs> Mine apparently aren't I on the same page. Like subtle things, just like how you hold the pinky and where you tap them on the body, stuff like mm-hmm. I, you know, I think you just have to kind of wade through it yourself till you figure it out. Now, when you are tease feeding yours, how long are you giving them before you say, okay, whatever, next time we'll we'll try again in a, in a week? Uh, it kind of depends on like my manicuaris were uh, this year. They were. I think three of them ate like the first time. And so I probably tried harder than I normally would have to get the other, the other couple going. Um, Cause I was like, well, your siblings did it. Why don't you? Do it? Yeah. Uh, but normally I would say I might spend, I don't know, five to 10 minutes trying. I don't, I don't usually try that hard. If they're going to do it, you can kind of get a sense for if they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. If they're if they're biting and wrapping, then I'll I'll keep going until they, you know, basically stop biting. Yeah, until they bail and then go to running. Yeah, I had one manicure that was <laughs> the hardest to get going this year, and it finally took its first meal uh, last week. Um, and when I the first couple, of, all the times I had tried before, it would bite them but wouldn't wrap it uh, mm-hmm. at all, and then. The other day, it was like, oh, it actually wrapped it. And it, I think it wrapped it and dropped it maybe five times before it finally wrapped it and <laughs> ate it. So 
Yeah, that these ones I can tell they're getting there. Like they're getting close because they're. I can tell they're they're trying to f- like they think it's food. They're just not a hundred percent sure, and so they're not wanting to commit. Yeah. So they're they're getting there, and then I've got maybe two or three that are hardcore runners, but I'm I'm yeah, on the I'm on the fringe. Spoiled the crap out of me this year. I couldn't believe how easy they were. <laughs> yeah. It was like all of them ate the first time. Yeah, the, that last... I have eaten every time since. It was like, oh, this is easy. <laughs> that latest clutch that Pedro got, I think he said all of those ate the first time, no problem. Which was probably I mean, yeah, that's I'd that's say, the freaking jackpot. Probably if you wait. A couple weeks versus trying right away, you probably get sixty percent fairly mm-hmm. consistently to go. But F one stuff tends to be a little harder if you're breeding wild adults together. Yeah, um, that would make or sense. Or if you're breeding multi generation crappy babies that shouldn't have lived in the first place, that's probably pretty <laughs> tough too. Have you, uh, Ryan? I know you've been to Australia. Have you had the chance to see these guys in the wild yet? I went to Iron Range, but I was there for, um, what, three nights, I think. And uh, we hit a remarkably dry period, and we did not see a single snake in the three days we were there. Quite a few lizards, and I saw their prey items. (laughs) I saw the mammals they eat. I saw the skinks that they eat. I saw all that stuff, but I I didn't see them. And then, of course, it started to dump the day after we left. Yeah, so, go figure. But it was a, it's a tricky time of year. You try to time it to right before the monsoon. Uh, you don't want to get stuck up there mm-hmm. when the rain starts, you know, when it sucks in because you can't get back in. And a lot of the rental car companies won't rent you a car uh, that late in the year to go up there. So uh, you have yeah. to – it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it was boom. It was boom dry when we were there, so we did not see any. Oh, am, am I wrong? For some reason, I'm thinking you had a hand with that book that Terry Phillip and Justin Julander wrote and put out a couple years back. Did you have something to do with that? No, I I had just I had talked to Justin a little bit about it, but oh, okay, gotcha. that was it. I really enjoyed that book. I'm I'm a hardcore believer that that book is a slightly more reliable than maxwell's yeah it's uh the information is real good the um maxwell's book you know has a lot of pictures and people like that so it's, <laughs> um, I, don't know, I mean maxwell's books aren't like the worst thing ever they're not the, yeah the greatest thing but he definitely had his own opinions and was not afraid to publish them <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have a lot, a lot of people, people message me asking which one they should get, and I tell them both because I think Maxwell's book still has relevant information that's useful. But you still, yeah, you I think the whole to, book has the, to be the, taken with a slight grain of salt because, given how old it is. Yeah, you just have to know what you know. So I think people make the mistake of thinking because it's written in a book makes it great information, and that's not always the case. That you know, you can the author's opinion on everything definitely uh shows through but the justin's book is better because it actually uses science from the wild and Mm -hmm. you know bases a lot of their opinions on that versus maxwell's you know beliefs that he had based on his beliefs that he had (laughs) it is what it is but yeah if you want to just you know pick up a book that 
tells you how to keep a condor alive or whatever. You know, the Maxwell book's not terrible. Some of the how big they should get and stuff like that, I would caution heavily against. But. Uh, so what else are you? What else are you breeding other than condors? Like, what's your big project this year? Uh, this year, the coolest thing I bred was uh, Dunn's pythons. Oh yeah, yeah. As might have been the second time in the United States mm-hmm. they've been bred. Yeah, congrats on that, Ryan. That's awesome. I appreciate it. They're really old adults. I don't think that Dunn are going to be like considered a hard species to breed. I think they're just we have a limited availability of 25 year old wild caught snakes. And yeah, so it's, that's what makes it challenging. I don't believe the species is going to prove in the long run to be that they're particularly hard. It's just these particular animals are really old and wild caught. And so we got lucky and got a female that laid some eggs. How many, how many babies did you get from her? Uh, seven. She laid, um, what? I think she laid 11 or 12, but when you're breeding near 30 year old snake, you know, the eggs are not the greatest shape. So, <laughs> were they just like under calcified? Yeah, there was a lot of patchy windows in some of them, uh, just weak veining. Uh, a condition you'll see when you breed really old snakes is when you candle the egg, you'll see like, um, they're quote-unquote fertile like there's a there's clearly an embryo and then Mm -hmm. there's like this red ring but there's no veins it's just this red ring and i've seen that with really old anteresa females really old carpet pythons really old blood pythons usually snakes in their late 20 or you know mid to late 20s you Mm -hmm. start seeing uh, stuff like that where the egg looks like well that could hatch but when you candle it it's it's got a blood ring, but not a... The, the lights are on, but no one's home. Yeah. And there was a few of those, and I think there was a couple full-term babies that looked like they had died a week before hatching for whatever reason. But the seven that came out are great, great shape. Um, multicolored babies, which is pretty interesting for a lysis species. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so that was that's far the... The highlight of this season. <laughs> have uh, have you sexed the three point four? Nice, nice. So the ratio is good. Yeah. Uh, That's but, awesome. The uh, the female was owned by KJ Clusen, and he had sent her up in October, last October. And so I had to. I sent him his percentage of the babies the other day. Yeah. So he's got he's got his. Baby. Now it's nice to have some captive bred babies to, and um, so let me see which is right with her, hopefully. Yeah, it's pretty neat to see Lias is starting to get some, some traction. I have a buddy down in Florida, Billy Hunt. He uh he has a, a pretty nice group of them, and I got to check those out when we went down for Carpet Fest. Those things are pretty neat. They're cool snakes. Yeah, no, Lias are great. All the all of them are really neat snakes. Savus have been on my list for a really long time. Yeah, Savus are great. My, I let my adults get really old, and I need to replace them because they're reproductively vulnerable anymore. They, it seems like uh, they used to be not that hard to come across, and now it seems yeah, like there's next to no them pretty, one. Pretty readily, and 
Yeah. The interest waned and they're not coming in, so they're not getting bred that often. Now the price is way up. Yeah. They're brutal now. Speaking, of the, speaking of, you know, like the, the availability of all these things, what do you, you know, what's your prediction as far as like Indonesia is concerned in terms of continuing to, to get baby chondros imported? Do you think that's going to continue or are they going to start closing up? Um, well, I don't, I don't picture them completely losing it up. Um, obviously wild collecting snakes, but, um, I, I'll be surprised if, well, I guess politically, if, if New Guinea stays controlled by Indonesia further, then I wouldn't see it stopping. If West Papua was ever granted its independence like they so desperately desired, I could see it. Under Indonesia's rule, I doubt it'll ever, it'll ever stop. But I've heard rumors that there's a new environmental ministry person that's actually trying to enforce the, the quotas and stuff like that. And so you see there's definitely been a recent dip in the availability of a lot of Indo stuff. Uh, it's hard to say with the with the green pythons that could just be. I mean, we could be seeing the repercussions of you know, the, um, mm-hmm. as far as the you know the baby availability, but otherwise, I I don't I don't think it would I don't think it's ever going to stop. Yeah. I think it. They might get to the point where they actually only send over farm bred stuff, but and then. Like I said, boring. An amazing set of events where West Papua was granted its independence. There, Indonesia, I doubt, will stop exporting. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, think about the shit show that would be. Just think about all the stuff in the hobby that comes from over there, and if all of a sudden that was yeah, it would that be, was no would longer be an option. <laughs> there would be a lot of stuff that within a few years, the chances of ever seeing them again would be pretty slim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You better stock up on your imported Indo species. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny you say that, but like Jacob's doing that, the guy who I, I don't know if you listen to THP or not, but I do another podcast with him, and he, uh, he's he been really focused on stocking up on as much wild-caught uh, Erie and Jaya carpet blood as he can. That's Just cool. for that very reason. Yeah, I like, see, I prefer the wild stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I do. That too. sounds so bad. Cause, you know the the message from our community is you know captive bred, captive bred. But there, when I was you know coming up, it you really couldn't get. Mm-hmm. Nobody was captive breeding any locality stuff, so you basically didn't have a choice if you you wanted anything other than their uh, hybrid slash designers. You would have to you had to buy wild cop. I mean, I'm all for it. Like, get as much wild caught blood in the in the, you know, the hobby, on the state side at least as you can before it's not an option anymore. I don't want it to be like Australia where we're kind of stuck with the gene gene pool we have. Yeah, no, it's we you know we have access to the major types, and it's, it'd be sad if we would we would probably lose some of those in fairly short order. Mm-hmm. If uh, I mean it's probably like everything. If if all of a sudden human beings have a funny thing about if you can't have it, then they want it. So 
Yeah. All the all these guys who don't care about buyout contracts and stuff like that might care the second they were in a situation where everybody had locality stuff because you know, that was the thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, it seems a more even as far as designer versus locality stuff now. At least way more than I was ever used to. Yeah, and it's nice <laughs> that there's, it's just like carpets though, like you have the purists and then you have the, you know, the guys that are into all the morphs and stuff like that and i think there's always going to be that section of the you know no matter what corner of the hobby it is there's always going to be that that's that group even if it's smaller that's focused on the locality stuff and the pure stuff and it's neat that there's people that are willing to do that you know in condros especially yeah no i mean i honestly i i've looked at a lot of thousands of pictures of green pythons over the years and i I don't think most of those designer ones turn out very good. They, the locality stuff, it's much more predictable what you're going to get mm-hmm. as far as, I mean, yeah, you might not get the dramatic appearance, but if that's what floats your boat, but yeah. I would still take, I'd still take a, a crazy high white Aroo or high yellow Bioc or Kofi Ao. You know, all the locality stuff, the best wild locality examples, I still think blow away any any designer. Yeah, I love those. a lot of those Tamikas with all that blue. Yep. Those are smoking. Yeah, no, there's something, something for everybody. But, I mean, an ugly chondro doesn't Pretty, exist, you know. Or, or, whether whether it's said an ugly chondro doesn't exist, whether it's designer or locality, they're all, they're all awesome. No, they're all great, but... There's definitely something for <laughs> I guess if you know, if that's what there's something for everyone though. If you like certain things, somebody mm-hmm. will have it for you, I guess. But for me, it's all I like. I like them to look like the part of the world, the mm-hmm. biogeography, the aspect of how they are in nature appeals to me far more than just creating some weird one in a box. Mm-hmm. So, I can understand that. Yeah. It's having an appreciation for, you know, the the stuff that's as is, and that's there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Yeah, well, taxonomically, there's multiple species. So mm-hmm. It's. And what's most, your stance on that? Do you think it's more than two? Do I? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Definitely. It's probably four. And you think what the other two were, what the island island localities? No, I honestly, I think all the southerns are the same species. I think the north, you've got multiple things going on. And then you going to be stuff way off the populous side. Uh, apparently, I think one of those that's been genetically tested was pretty weird. So... Hmm. I think you've got. I think Biox definitely its own thing, and that's Biox is the namesake for Azuria. So, um, I would not be surprised if Pulcher gets resurrected, which would be the name that was given to the northern, not Biox. So, at some point, Chondro Python Pulcher will probably be back in, back in use. <laughs> Did you know of anybody who's currently working on that kind of stuff? 
Like as I far believe, as the classification, I believe there's a coalition of Australian guys doing it. Uh, oh, cool. They've been doing it for like a decade, and I haven't, I haven't seen any results. So. Ray Hoser isn't one of them, is he? I hope not. Uh-huh. No, not <laughs> in the group I'm thinking of. He's done it. He's named. He's named a few things, I think. He's named everything he can get his hands on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's uh, he's interesting. That's an understatement. <laughs> But, yeah, so I think there's multiple things going on, and I think they're pretty easy to tell apart. I don't know what everybody's fuss about it is, but it, maybe it's just because I've been looking at locality stuff for so long. Yeah, that's something like as far as identifying like the really close uh, stuff. I'm still working on getting good at that, but for the most part, I have a I have a general idea where it's likely from. Well, the problem is we we're trying to break it down too specifically. Mm-hmm. The I mean, in the South, you basically got two looks: you got a ruse, and you got Marukis and Australians. Right. The you know in the North, you've got you know the, the Raja Ampat stuff is all a little different than the Bird's Head the, mm-hmm. than the, the North, and then Bioc is I mean. Jesus, if you can't see that, you need to get your eyes checked. <laughs> but it's, it's uh, so I think it's, I don't think it's that tough, but it's, I guess it's beyond the scope for some people to be able to. Yeah, and that, but that's always been my gripe with the whole locality thing is, you know, you get people that just because that's what it was sold as, like they're dead set that that's what it is. And it's like, unless, my thing is, unless you went and plucked it yourself. Like we have no idea. We just have a general area of what you know. We have a group that looks similar to this locality, so we can, you know, best guess is it's from that general area. But used to hear that like, oh, if you didn't catch it, how do you know? We've never seen a picture of a wild one, and then all the pictures from, you know, Natush and stuff, and it was like, oh shit, yeah, they actually do look like that. A ruse looked like that, right? <laughs> It was like, wow, they actually, you know, kind of shut some of that up mm-hmm. where it was like, well, you might not have collected it yourself, but there's basically four regions. And if, you know, it's not really that tough to determine, well, it's probably from this group of localities and or this group of localities. And I think it's mostly with, you know, like uh, Cyclops and Jayapura and Sarongs, it's I just yeah, I don't well, know. It's just the same snake. A cyclops and a jaguar is the same snake. Yeah. <laughs> it's just this. It's changing hands so many times from the time it's pulled and all. It's just how do you you know how well, valid I don't think, is that? I mean, there's not a lot of infrastructure in New Guinea. These things are not coming from great distances from you know major ports. Mm-hmm. So it's feasible. The people don't have the means of transportation. There's no infrastructure. There's no roads, you know, more than likely, you know, if it was, if it was said to be from Sarong, it was probably within a decent, uh, you know, probably 40 miles of Sarong. There's not a whole lot. You can't really go that many places. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the animal collectors are getting them from local people. They're not, you know, that's a lot of new stuff because there's, you know, they can't, there's no infrastructure to go get it. They're not going to, they don't get it, you know? And even Marukis, you don't hardly, 
rarely does a Maruki chondro come in, and that's because, for one, they don't even occur around Maruki. Mm-hmm. So to get – there are no major ports in the south. That's why you don't see that many white-striped green pythons because there's just not – there's not that many animal dealers down there collecting them. Where Rue is a major trade route with, you know, they get, that's why Rue is by far the most commonly imported southern species Mm -hmm. because there's actually trade route where Maruki is the main hub in the south and in Maruki. So hence you don't, (laughs) you don't see them that much. No. I mean, that, that makes complete sense. That's like that's why you you know you're not going to see these like what does one look like from here? Nobody knows because there's nobody there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the biogeography of New Guinea is pretty crazy. It's uh, right now it's one island, but at one point it was probably up to four different islands. Oh really? Together to create one island. Whether those snakes were there before or after it became one island, it's hard to say. Well, all right. We are at about 125. Last question is going to be, unless David has some, uh, what are your tips for new chondro breeders, like your top three? Um, ignore, half the, <laughs> ignore half of the <laughs> stuff you hear. <laughs> Just... I mean, if you have it's it's a lot easier if you have ambient temperatures. Mm-hmm. If you can if you can give them ambient, insanely easy to keep. Uh, most of the problems you run into are when you're trying to heat cages in unheated spaces, and that that tends to be, in my opinion, the number one cause of issues. And don't feed them a lot. That's pretty straightforward. But. There you go. David, you got anything? No, that's that's it. Cool. Okay. Right. Well, I appreciate y'all coming on, man. Mans. No problem. I enjoyed it. Appreciate the invite. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Anytime. And mm. go get some products from David. He makes great stuff. I keep absolutely. all my babies on his purchase. <laughs> He's Thanks, the man. He's the, the official sponsor well, of this hey, podcast. You, you, you made my custom size purchase for me, so I couldn't... Uh, can't not give you a plug for that. <laughs> no, much appreciated. Thank you. You didn't want to make them as thin as I wanted them, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. They work great. So pick yourself up some some purchase. Yep. Awesome. Check them out at specialtyenclosuredesigns.com. Where can people find you, Ryan? Uh, Facebook. I've got my, my personal page, which is Ryan Young. And then I've got uh, my Molecular Reptile page, Facebook Molecular Reptile. And then I have a website, www.molecularreptile.com. Awesome. All right. Well, everyone, be sure to check that out. And uh, check out Specialty Enclosure Designs, of course. Uh, I think that's it, y'all.